Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. What the truck! You are listening to What the Truck! Are you ready to truck it? Welcome to Monday. Welcome to your Nooner with Dooner. How's it going, everybody? It's fall. It's going to be fall and chilly out here in Tennessee. By the way, you're all coming out here well, November 7th, so this might be shut down by then. But if you're local out here, I know Steam guys were over here just a few weeks ago ramming me into a gong. I know I got a lot of Chattanooga listeners. In fact, I think when we did that uh, breakdown of top markets, you guys were number eight. So I got a little treat for you guys. Over the weekend, I went down to Flat Top Mountain Farm in Saudi Daisy, and I got lost in this corn maze over there. I highly recommend it. This place was, uh, it's $12 to go. They've got two corn mazes. They've got a, uh, they've got a uh, hayride over there. You get a free pumpkin. It took us about, geez, a little over an hour to get out of there. So if you can beat our time, you'll be doing a better job than we were. Highly recommended. It's about 30 minutes from downtown Chattanooga. Thanks, guys. You can drop that video. By the way, there a lot of environmental crisis, environmental stuff comes up, and it got me thinking back to my youth, so I put, I put a question out there. The big environmental crisis when I was a kid was hairspray. This was like the late 80s, and I remember in school they were saying that people using Aquanet were putting a gigantic hole in the ozone layer. It was going to kind of do what, I guess, CO2 is, is doing now. It's, it's going to uh, cause global warming, and everybody is going to die. And I was curious which ones you went through, because these have long-lasting formative ones. Frank McCabe, he said, I remember global cooling and styrofoam Big Mac containers as the cause of all bad things when I was a kid. I certainly remember those. They switched over to paper. Uh, Bernard Quadden said, Global Ice Age. Then came the acid rain. Acid rain. Yeah, I thought that was going to turn me into a skeleton. Stephen Bartonelli. Yeah, acid rain was a big one. You scared all like the late 80s kids with the with the acid rain. Mike Costa, he's a little older. He said when I was a kid, it was the Soviets. They were going to nuke us, duck and cover. That was there for a little while until Rocky IV when, uh, when Rocky beat Ivan Drago over in Russia and, and quelled those fears. Ranger 71, though, he had a nuclear bomb training, a lot of them, and he said it was used as fear-mongering for nuclear pr- proliferation and including energy. John Conrad said we're, we were going to run out of water if everyone didn't put a brick in their toilet bowl tanks. I don't remember that one. Andrew Donaldson said, remember when we had when we had to make everything from plastic bottles to grocery store bags to save the planet? I absolutely do. I remember when my grocery store, they took away paper bags for a long time. All you get was plastic there. Paper was so demonized and it's had such like a long, like an annoying long lasting <laughs> uh, effect on this generation that I remember like boomer parents, they'd always laugh at us about like the paper they're like do you understand that's farmed the paper's farmed it's like no at school they're telling us we're deforesting the rainforest by doing all this paper i still get triggered when i don't see a blue bucket but uh i think they've got that one under control david newell had the opec oil embargo of the 70s i that's before my time but i think that's when they were looking at like the numbers on your place tell you when you could even go and get oil and then stan byrus says duck and cover nuclear configuration was real but placing your head under your desk was a truly poor method of protecting unless you were in a glass room Man, 
There's been a lot of these. I'm curious what yours were. What was your childhood environmental crisis that you remember? Let me know. But we got a lot going on the show today. On today's episode of What the Truck, I'm joined by super trucker Justin Martin. We're going to talk about a freight recession like none other. We'll find out why one expert is saying the industry won't normalize until 2025. Who is that one expert? It's our CEO and founder, Greg Fuller. That's not good. Uh, is the driver shortage a myth? Rates and freight rejects sure say so. The economy sure says so. We'll break down why this myth keeps getting perpetuated by the media. Pay, parking, fuel prices, those top Atri's uh, list of top issues. We're going to break down their latest list. And we also have driver concerns versus carrier concerns. Cambridge Security Seals Claudia Kozer here. She's teaching us everything we need to know about the humble world of seals. We've got ta- Travelers Tim Drucker. He's going to educate us on the difference between inland and marine cargo insurance, plus toughest delivery locations, amusement park for dads, unique sleeper cabs, and Taylor Swift fan Storm AMC. Let's tip the band, and we'll get into it here. Looking for a new adventure? Take the next step on your career journey with AIT Worldwide Logistics. When you join their growing team, you'll collaborate with expert colleagues around the world to create innovative solutions backed by world-class customer service. If you're ready to push the supply chain envelope, your next adventure is waiting. Visit the career section at AITWorldwide.com to learn more. But right now, we're going to talk to Tim Drucker, Chief Underwriting Officer of Ocean Marine at Travelers, and we're going to learn something new today. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Where are you coming into us from? Where are you hanging out today? I'm coming in from Westport, Connecticut, and uh, happy to be here today and to talk to you about marine cargo insurance. You got to bring the whalers back over there, man. They got to bring the whale back. Take them back from Carolina. That's right. That's right. Well, great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump into things. Why, why, uh, why should people listen to the great Tim Drucker? Sure. So Travelers is a leading provider of ocean cargo products in the U.S. I I serve and lucky enough to serve as the chief underwriting officer. So I work with our U.S. and Canadian underwriting team to distribute those products through our agents and brokers to importers and exporters, uh, marine service providers. So we also insure commercial vessel operators and we do a little bit of luxury yacht business. So it's a diverse and interesting business. Um, and happy to talk to you a little bit today about what we do on the ocean cargo front. Yeah, a diverse and interesting business with a lot of nuances to it today. One of those nuances is the difference between ocean cargo versus inland. Break it down for us. Yeah, sure. So I, I know you've got a little background in, in the ocean cargo space from, from your family ties. Mm-hmm. So it was great to see some of uh, you, you and your dad cover some of that. So I'm going to hit maybe a little bit from a different perspective. Um, you know, your listeners know day in, day out how, how complex our, our transportation system is and, and the supply chain. And, and there's really no one size fits all product. And, and that's where ocean cargo or marine cargo begins to differentiate from the inland marine product. One difference is when you get to an ocean cargo product, it's really intended for, for customers that have goods traveling in a global transportation network or a global supply chain. So these are customers using multiple different conveyances, not just truck and rail, um, but certainly, you know, getting into the vessel and and air conveyances as well. And this is a one stop shop product to cover that 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 product through the supply chain. So we're talking about wholesalers and manufacturers who who, who use vessels oftentimes and vessels provide 80 percent of our global trade volume. And so this is a first party coverage, as we call it. It's intended to protect the customer's goods, their product or raw materials throughout that supply chain. 
And if something happens, whether it's water damage on a vessel or container theft or spoilage, we're here to serve you know, the customer from a claims perspective, product perspective, and also offer some, some engineering and, and loss mitigation services. Interesting. Well, so that's a, a key difference. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, the Inland Marine product, as you, as you can imagine, truck and rail, mostly domestic. Um, but the other thing is our customers with the Ocean Cargo product really are the, sh- are the cargo owners. So it's their product, it's their raw material. And what the Inland Marine product does is you're really covering the transportation provider, the carrier, the logistics professional, that logistics partner that helps get your goods through the supply chain. And what that creates is as a logistics partner, you have a duty to care for those goods. And so that's a legal liability that they assume through contracts. And the Inland Marine product is generally providing a contractual product to those customers, whereas our product will cover the, um, the shipper for physical damage to their goods before we even start looking at what the contracts say. We want to just make sure the customer is whole. So then they can work it out with their with their freight forwarder if there's going to be any um, legal liability to work out. What are the differences between ocean and inland marine? Yeah, I mean the big one is is the domestic versus global. So what what I work with on a on a global basis is you know things going on in the Middle East right now or with China, and and so you're you're really looking at a more of a macro scale. Um, but the supply chains are very different. And as a result, you know, the claim situations can be different as well. So theft is really important to be concerned about in the U.S. It is globally as well. But so is water damage, mishandling, spoilage, things that happen because when you're dealing on a global scale, a delay can take anywhere between days and weeks, like the Suez Canal, you know, something going on there, perhaps again. Um, and, and that's really it makes the product and the risk a lot different. So what do carriers do when these sort of liabilities come up that, that we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is if you're a shipper and you own the, cost, the, the product, you're basically going to put your carrier on notice, carriers like us, so that we can start working um, through the freight forwarder or through the carriers to identify how to mitigate or to... Um, or to, or to reco- make a recovery on the on the goods if it's it's stolen. So, for instance, if we have a theft claim, Travelers has a, a theft group called our SIG group, and they they do theft investigations. You've probably heard about it from Scott Cornell, so who, who's been on your show before. So we'll work to see if we can make a recovery, but we're going to look at the legal liability aspects of it as well um, on behalf of the on behalf of the shipper or the customer that we have. Wow. Yeah, sting trailers, man. One day we gotta we gotta like follow one of these sting trailers around and, and see what happens. Those are those are probably one of the most exciting things that I talk to you guys about. But if people are curious to learn more about inland and marine cargo and they want to talk to you, where do I send them to? Yeah, so the first place to go is you know we all work through agents and brokers generally to to, to purchase our insurance coverages, and that's a great place to start. And Travelers is a known entity with all of our agents and brokers across the country. And so you can also see us on our website at travelers.com slash ocean marine, where we have a, a, a great summary of our product offerings um, to, to give you a sense of, you know, a little bit more of what we talked about today. 
Very cool. Well, Tim, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for giving us a little clarity here. Thanks for having me on. Take it easy. All right, everybody. Meanwhile, let's see what's happening here. It's a cat, and he's loose on a plane. Now, is this intentional, or is this like an emotional support cat? Do we need emotional support cats on aircraft? What do you think? I saw Justin's Christmas tree and what his cats did to it, so I, I think he'd probably be shaking his head no right now. Probably not a good idea. I can actually see him in the green room. He's giving it a thumbs down. But we're not talking to him right now. We're going to find out about the exciting and humble world of seals. Seals are on everything in our industry. But do you even think about them unless they're broken? Probably not too much. But today we are because we got Claudia Coatser on. She's a business development manager over at Cambridge Security Seals. Claudia, I'm excited to learn about this, this world of seals. Thank you, Tim. Hi. Thank you for having me on your show. You ever uh, have a cat get loose on an airplane before? <laughs> We've seen some interesting things in South Africa, but no, not a cat on a plane. <laughs> you have it, before we even get into Cambridge Security Seals, let's get into your background a little bit, because you are from South Africa. You've started your own companies. You're with Cambridge Security Seals now. Uh, what are you all about? So my background, Tim, has always been in sales and business development. And yes, I ran a distribution company in South Africa in the world of security seals. So security seals have been in my blood for probably 25 years now, giving away my age. <laughs> That's a, hey, you've, had, you've, been, you've been in the world of seals for a long time and you're with one of the biggest companies that produce them, Cambridge Security Seals. What are they all about? Okay, so Cambridge Security Seals um, is a 10-year-old company, the fastest growing company in America producing seals. And seals are, as you rightly said, all around us. And they're really important, but many people are, are not really aware of them and what they actually do and the, the benefit that they bring to a value chain. I don't know if you'd like me to elaborate on that a little. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, well, like exactly. What do they do? What, what should we be thinking about when we think about seals? Okay, so so seals, um, Tim, are really used in in a number of different applications, right through from trucking through to elections, um, absolutely everywhere. And seals are uniquely numbered, and the whole purpose of a seal is to identify where there's been any kind of breach in in custody. Um, they they really help you identify integrity and traceability in any kind of a value chain. So the important thing is that they are uniquely numbered. So if a seal has been breached or replaced, it immediately gives the user some indication that something has happened, some kind of compromise could potentially have taken place. And that really tells the, the next stage of the story of some kind of an investigation needs to ensue. Is a seal always a seal? Like what kind of different seals are there? What's, what's interesting? What's new about seals? Are they getting more high tech? Tim, yes, they are. Obviously, technology um, has its footprint absolutely everywhere. Um, Cambridge really specializes in what we call one-time use seals, predominantly in plastic, but then there are different materials moving into more high security seals. Um, and yes, there are technology, uh, technologically driven seals available that obviously bring a lot more intelligence to the process. Um, they can be GPS driven, they can time and date stamp when any kind of access opportunity has taken place. Um, but we find even with technology coming in, the market is still very much using one-time use seals just because of the, the ease, I guess, um, and the management of not having to worry about how a seal potentially comes back. But a uniquely numbered seal used in a one-time environment obviously protects the integrity of 
of the consignment or the shipment that, that is being monitored with the seal. You know, I was on your company's LinkedIn page and you were doing a big thing for fire prevention awareness. And at first I'm like, like, what do SEALs even have to do with that? Well, they're on every single fire extinguisher. And it got me really curious. What industries are, are using SEALs? Like, who do you sell to? Well, I mean, obviously we would think containers, we would think tankers, we would think trucks, but obviously there's way more to it than that. Correct. Um, and your previous speaker mentioned the claims process in, in road and rail. Um, so that is a huge, huge part of our business. So we would work with the railways. We work with logistics companies, anybody who's really moving a product from point A to B, where, where you need the assurance that nothing has happened in, in that process from A to B and that integrity has been maintained. Um, food production is, is obviously a huge thing in America in terms of traceability, giving the consumer peace of mind that the product that they're consuming in store has followed a chain of custody um, uninterrupted. Um, then you have the pharmaceutical industry, you have elections, you have, and back to your fire, where it's not a security um, application at all, it's about identification and traceability. So in the fire industry, it's about, has that fire extinguisher been serviced by an appropriate authority in the time frame that is laid down by the law? Um, so fire safety is a, is a very, very big part of our business, um, a very important vertical. And yes, as probably the company with the quickest turnaround, best quality, um, that is an industry that, that derives enormous peace of mind from, from our very, very simple products. Now I'm curious, because we always look at numbers like the number of TEUs coming into port and the truck rolled volumes coming on. Every one of those semi-trucks has a seal and every one of those TEUs has a seal. How many seals are there in the world? Like how many seals do you guys produce? Our range, Tim, is, is probably about 12 different products, but then in a, in a wide variety of, of well, variations and, and lost for words, um, the different options that go with the type of seals. But there are a myriad seals available in so many different materials. And sometimes they, they're very similar, but they've just been made longer, shorter, with a bigger billboard for printing. And I think, Tim, that is where we... We pride ourselves on helping customers make sense of the, the amount of choices out there, um, that they're really buying something that is, in fact, fit for purpose. Um, the cosmetics do man matter. Uh, many of our customers do want very specialized branding, uh, and that we can do too, but that we help them decide if you're looking at a myriad seals available, which do you actually go for that's going to do the best job for you and based on your risk profile. But do you know like how many seals are sold a year or like how big this market is of seals? I think that's that's difficult to quantify. So I would definitely throw out a number that could be incorrect. <laughs> sure. Well, how about it's your seals? Millions. How, how are your seals made? They're, they're plastic. And I believe on the site it said they were made in the USA. You control all your own manufacturing? Correct. So our seals are made in Pomona, New York, but we ship all over the world. The Americas are obviously our key focus, but... Um, to Europe and Africa and beyond. Are people using seals wrong? Like what, you are the seal experts. What are we doing wrong with seals out there? Tim, um, I think if somebody assumes that a seal is foolproof um, or that it's sort of dummy proof, uh, the, the answer is it isn't. It's, it's a visual indicator and you still need a human to interrogate the seal, sometimes very simply 
but to check the number, that the number recorded is in fact the, the seal that left with a particular shipment. Um, but also just to look at the seal and say, has it been compromised in any way? Um, and that is where we educate customers as well to, to offer training to their users. How do they look at a seal and, and identify that something has happened to it? Um, and obviously there are companies who make products of, of inferior quality where the seal can be manipulated to be put together again. And that's obviously an absolute no-no, which a company like Cambridge using only the best quality materials and superb workmanship, you cannot do that. If it's a one-time use seal, once it's used, it's used and it, it has to be discarded. Um, but yes, people do need a little bit of enlightenment and education on how to use a seal and not just commoditize it as a piece of plastic that has no value. It, it has a critical value. And if used incorrectly, it, it's not going to deliver that value. How do you find a dummy seal, right? Like, so counterfeiting seal, uh, like mock-up seals, ways that people have cut them and can put a new seal on there. They have to be a problem, right? Thieves must love that. Um, I think somewhere we try and caution customers against is is where do you get your seals from? Because if, if you're just going to to jump online and order a packet of seals from someone that you haven't actually vetted as a reputable manufacturer, they, they could be the, a compromise with the numbering, maybe not so much in the actual seal, but the numbering. Now at Cambridge Security Seals, we, we take enormous pride in, we're selling peace of mind and we're selling integrity. And with that is a, is a reliability factor. So we keep very close record of, of the printing that we print for customers. And we exercise due diligence when a customer reorders. Uh, we have that information on file to obviously prevent any kind of repeat numbering. Um, but we take enormous pride in being able to be called in by a company and say, this is one of your seals. Who did you sell it to? That's part of the traceability that we supply. Um, and yes, with, with less sophisticated products made in dubious manufacturing environments, you, you can potentially take a seal apart and manipulate it with super glue, try and put it back together again. And that's where we play a role in, in education as well. Um, it is an enlightened market. Most people do know how to use seals and use them responsibly. But we do encounter customers who just aren't really sure. And it's our job to say, well, given the situation that you've described or the commodity that's being moved, we would recommend something either more secure, more robust, um, that's part of the, the service. It's not just trading a box of plastic and saying, here are your goods. There's a lot more to it than that. Is there ever any temptation or even market for like to put like air tags, for example, inside the seals to do like container tracking that way or load tracking, or it just doesn't make sense? Oh, Tim, that definitely does exist. It's not uh, Cambridge's wheelhouse at this stage, um, but very much so. Uh, temperature monitoring, um, resistance monitoring, um, all sorts of technology does exist in seals like that. And and yes, tracking. Um, and I'm trying to think how to simply describe that. When, when any kind of an attack does take place, you do have seals that have built-in sensors and can obviously communicate that something has happened that shouldn't have happened. Um, the downside with that technology is it is expensive. Um, and it is still largely, in my personal experience, fairly unreliable and unstable. And that's why I think we've, we haven't at all noticed a decrease in the interest in seals in the four years that I've been at Cambridge. In fact, demand is growing um, because I think the risk profile changed post-COVID, 
where um, seals were still largely about traceability. And then theft became more of, of a topic because of socioeconomic hardship. So where we had customers before who maybe used a lower quantity of seals um, and, and a lower risk seal, they're increasing their quantities and they're going to some, something a little bit more robust sometimes. So um, technology definitely has its place and, and Cambridge certainly wants to be a part of that customer evolution. But um, in terms of the one-time use seals that we supply, still very much a market for that and we, we have a very important role to play. Do freight market volumes, uh, are they an indicator of how many seals a company like yours is going to sell? Definitely, Tim. As you, you see a, an increase in imports and obviously export, definitely. So we work with a lot of shipping companies and then obviously freight forwarders, inspection houses, and just the general consumer demand. So again, um, seasonally, as, as we come up to the holiday season now, that's a very typical time where there is just more product of every nature, from apparel right through to food, right through to money. Um, where there's an increase of movement and, and market buoyancy, it definitely impacts the, the demand for our product. And then you have your cycles, like the fire industry, that's, that's not really driven by um, an increase in demand during COVID that stayed pretty similar. But obviously, as everything bounced back and, and all sorts of uh, retail institutions and, and sporting and all of that reopened, we did see an increase there as well. Interesting. Oh, yeah. And you think of like housing starts and everyone buys a fire extinguisher for under their sink. That's a that's an interesting indicator, too, because you touch so much different stuff and you see it in a slightly different perspective. Now, people who want to learn more about seals, they want to get some new seals. They think, hey, they got some of these bogus seals. They want some Cambridge security seals. Where do I send them to? Best would be our website, um, Tim, which is cambridgeseals.com. Nice and easy. And then obviously LinkedIn pages, Facebook and we, we're very keen to to support wherever we need it. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate you for teaching us a little about SEALs today. Thank you for having me. Take it easy, everybody. Okay, let's see here. We're going to tip the band now. Did you know that AIT Worldwide Logistics has been recognized as a top performer by Cranes, Forbes, Inbound Logistics, Transport Topics, and yes, even FreightWaves? They're on our Freight Tech 100 list. You can boost your job satisfaction, regain a sense of purpose, and open your career opportunities. One of the fastest growing organizations in the industry. Visit the career section at AITWorldwide.com to learn more and, you know, go and apply today. All right, everybody, elsewhere. This guy's just crossing the street, not expecting anything. Not sure he had a walk signal or not. Oh, that car slammed here. Watch this guy, though. He makes it. Whoa! Whoa! You think that's the end of it, though? Keep watching. He landed on someone's vehicle. Someone ran a red light. And I think, I think the guy who almost got creamed by that car is going to walk into frame right there. There he is. Can we roll? That's the same guy, right? He's got the same outfit. Good. He didn't get smushed by that vehicle. Look at that, though. The guy has no idea. Whoa. <laughs> the guy pulling up is like, what the hell? Reverse flatbed. Beautiful stuff, right to strap work. Let's bring up Mr. Justin Martin, Super Trucker. Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you ever get run over crossing the street, Justin? What's your uh, what's your pedestrian near death experience? Nothing like that. That guy needs to go out and buy like as many stacks of lottery tickets ASAP. I'm a uh, I'm a jaywalker. Uh, 
coming from Boston and cities, people tend to like be very more cognizant of when people are crossing the street mm. and the road. I am not as much of a jaywalker in Tennessee, and I definitely wasn't in Hollywood. In Hollywood, people would like yell at you. Like when I was living in California, if you if you jaywalk, they're like, "You can't do that. It's against the law. You get a ticket." They would like freak out. They'd be like, "People around here, they don't play like that." Now, Philadelphia is kind of the same way, but it's split in half. North Philly, everybody just walks wherever the hell they want. But South Philly, everybody's nice and polite. They use the crosswalks. If you jaywalk in South Philly, you're going to get some middle fingers thrown your way. You've seen some of those videos from, like, the takeovers. I know there was that big one with, like, the shipping container. But in Chicago, there's been a bunch recently. Yeah. And in Philadelphia, there was that one. And you're driving down the street, and these people will come by on, like, motorcycles and ATVs or just cars or just people. And they'll block you, and they'll start smashing your windows and, like, beating on your car. And you're supposed to just sit there and take it. You've been yeah, in I've, it? I've, not no smash windows, thankfully. But in, in my postal truck, I've, I've had a couple opportunities near the airport where they just block the tunnel and uh, just – be idiots for about a half hour oh do they try and like rip you out like reginald denny style no it's it's mostly just they'll go out there and do some wheelies and, and donuts and stuff in front of your truck and then you know by the time everything gets all cleared away it's like okay what the hell is that all about yeah no really it looks it looks kind of hairy because the tensions obviously get really high especially people with families you don't know what they're going to do to your kids yeah. like, I, d- yeah. don't come at my car crazy justin yeah. do you know Not what else is it. No one else is crazy. No matter how much we attack this, there's always another headline some random local news outlet will put out. Here's the latest one. This one, I believe they published a story on Friday on the driver shortage myth. It says uh, truck driver. Where is this headline right here? It says WHS reports truck driver storage continues to be a major problem locally and nationally. They're saying here a major shortage of truck drivers around the USA continues to cause problems for supply chains across the country. Trucking companies around the country and in the valley continue to have a difficult time finding drivers. One trucking company even said that unfortunately the driver shortage has been going on for the past few years and has only gotten worse as more older drivers leave the field and younger drivers have not come into replace them he says uh he can't find drivers but he's lowering his cost at the same time maybe he's just not maybe he's just not offering them much enough money justin why does this chestnut keep getting wheeled out it's a really fun narrative and it's you know very easy to say it's what you would think naturally you know drivers are retiring faster than they can be replaced it only makes sense the opposite is, is what's happening right now we have too many drivers we have too much capacity so that's bringing down rates that's bringing down wages and so now when drivers go to apply for these jobs, they see the pay that's being offered and they're like, I, I can get paid better somewhere else. There's, it, it's funny, too, because this article, like so many, it turns into an ad for a commercial driving school. At the bottom, it says Blue Ridge Every Community time. College has a commercial driving school. And in recent years, that program has grown. BRCC is doing everything it can to help with the shortage. I'm sure they are. They love that government money. To that. In fact, their program coordinator, Jim Butler, he says our enrollment has doubled in the past two years. And so our staffing and our equipment needs are all increasing as well. But we're trying to help the community with these shortages. They've done every beat, every trope. They've they've nailed it every single time. The only thing missing from that article is, according to the ATA, an 80,000. They they managed to leave that out this time. But everything else is like, every every single time they do this, it's it's the exact same thing. They find one company, they interview them, they say, we can't find drivers. Somewhere in the article or the video, they'll say, hey, guess what? You can go to your local community college and get your CDL through them. 
What what is the? I mean, we've we talked about it. Some people may have missed that episode. One of the reasons is this driver shortage that we hear about is promoted by the American Trucking Associations. The American Trucking Associations—they're the ones who put out that latest eighty thousand number. If you go through the history of AT talking about driver shortage, if you go back about ten years, they actually projected we'd be short like one hundred and thirty thousand drivers. And if you go to like twenty thirty, they'll be like two hundred short two hundred and fifty thousand drivers. But one thing listeners have to understand who aren't familiar is the American Trucking Association. Associations do not represent drivers. They represent large carriers. Large carriers want more drivers so they can pay them less money. Yeah, no, it's it's a revolving door. We in the industry we jokingly refer to them as CDL mills because it's just like a puppy mill. It's it's really the same thing. You got a constant churn of fresh meat coming in. Uh, they maybe last six months to a year if they're lucky, and then there's going to be someone else behind them to replace them. Eventually, you're going to start running out of uh, the labor supply and that's kind of i think what's happening right now is everybody that has cdls that's already gone through trucking is finding work elsewhere that's not a shortage that's just a matter of you know what's happening in the industry right now the drivers are out there they just have to be able to figure out how to work with them and you know meet meet the demands of those drivers that they need yeah, to understand the driver shortage, because it doesn't happen in a vacuum, to even understand this conversation, you have to understand what's going on in the freight market. We are not in a 2020 situation where a ton of companies fired their drivers, and there was a ton of goods flow, and then rates went to the top. That was a shortage, and that was a temporary shortage where there was not enough capacity, and that's why rates went crazy and rejects went crazy. We are in the opposite of that. We are in what's called a freight recession. Our own CEO and founder, Craig Fuller, he covered this wonderfully over the weekend. You can go to FreightWaves.com and read his article. But here is something he just posted. He said, this freight recession is unlike any other in history. The reason for Freight brokerages play a more significant role in the trucking market and have kept small carriers supplied with loads, albeit at cheaper rates. To be clear, trucking companies are leaving the industry, albeit at a much slower pace than anyone expected. The industry experienced a massive surge in trucking capacity over the past few years, which has greatly oversupplied the market. Based on current models, look at this, based on current models, we believe the capacity reset is about halfway done, and it could be 2025 before the market is back in balance. Yeah, it's rough. You know, we've been kind of hoping for, you know, middle of 2023 to have a rebound. Now it was, you know, early 2024. Now Craig is saying 2025. It's the more we're seeing where the capacity is and where it's bleeding out, that's how we can, you know, better forecast where hopefully things kind of reach a, a balance point. But I've been kind of not seriously saying, but like half tongue in cheek that the rates should be going lower, even lower than they are now to help flush out the extra capacity as soon as possible because we don't want this thing to be dragged out uh for as long as possible and that's kind of what he's been arguing in his in his new article here it's like everyone likes to complain about brokers taking too much off the top of, of the lows and absolutely there is a lot of that happening um but it's also the brokers giving out you know having the loads available for these smaller carriers that's still keeping them around when they could probably be leaving uh the industry right now and you know improving rates for everybody Broker strength, though, that is not a myth. That is a huge historical change. That's one of the things Craig outlined in here. He said in 2000, freight brokerage was a cottage industry representing a small percentage of the trucking industry, only 6%. Fast forward to 2023, freight brokerages handle more than 20% of all trucking freight. So big, big difference over these past 20, 23 years. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the um, you know bad freight that people are finding is on the spot market, but most of the freight never even reaches the, the, the spot market. 
Here is another massive change. Throw up this authorities chart over here. As of April 2023, there were more than 531,000 active trucking fleets that own or lease at least one tractor in the U.S., according to carrier details, FMCSA, and data available in Sonar. Contrast that with 1980, right? This is what Craig had in there. There was only 18,000 trucking companies. That is a massive run-up, too. So you look at the broker impact, but I think it's only fair to look at the trucking company impact too and i mean this has been happening since deregulation that was in 1980 yeah this is a great uh graph i love this it like perfectly visualizes what we're seeing in the industry we had a lead up you know everything was kind of on a trend and then covid boom you see the huge spike in uh carriers coming on and then now they're starting to, to, to peter out a little bit so um yeah this this is like a perfect perfect visual representation yeah we are geez 75 thousand to maybe ninety-five thousand over capacity looking at that chart i can't zoom in close enough but it definitely seems that way here's what luke velasquez had to say he said truckload carriers exist in the market at an increasing rate but still a long way to go before the market is balanced with demand and capacity we have mostly offset all of the carriers added by number in 2022 However, 2022 wasn't the big run-up part. It was 2020 and 2021, and that's what we're still trying to burn through and bring down in this market. We're in the opposite of a driver shortage. We actually need uh, about 80,000 of you to leave, not come in. Yeah, yeah, 63,000, looking at the math, going back and forth with Luke earlier, that's where it needs to hit before it finally reaches parity. But yeah, 80,000 will definitely bring rates back up again. We'd love to see it. Well, what's going on here? Let's take a look at the outbound tender volume index. That'll give you an idea. OTVI is down 1.74 year over year when you look at the year over year comparison. So it's not that much worse than last year, but last year was also terrible. So you're comparing two really awful seasons together. And I understand that, you know, people always talk about seasonality and freight. Justin, when have we had, look at these sonar charts from 2019. When have we had a normal market that completely follows seasonality? Like it's been broken. 2019, not a great year. 2020, an anomalous year because of a Black Swan event. 2021, an insane year. And then 2022, a return to reality where we still are now. Yeah, you got to go back to like 2017, 2018, just to see how things were, you know, going back even further. These With- last, what, five, like you said, five years, it's just been one uh, bl- Black Swan season after another. So when I tell you about these volumes, and the reason I bring this up for listeners who are sort of new to sonar data, is volume is what drives the freight market, right? There's a lot of volume. You need a lot of trucks. And if you need a lot of trucks, things start to happen. We start to notice telltale signs like rejects in the outbound tender reject market. Companies go, hey, the spot market's getting good. We don't have that much capacity. We'd rather go out there. We're going to reject your load. All it is is a digitally tendered load. Show this outbound tender reject index right now. It's sitting at 3.94%. Now, during the height of COVID, this thing was like, what, 22, uh, 22% or was even higher. It was getting way into the 20s. 4% means that 96%, more than 96% of loads that are tendered to the market are being accepted. People like their contract rates. In fact, OTV, OTRI, which measures relative capacity in the market, it's fallen 3.94% uh, year over year. Mm, yeah, well, when people say say no to cheap freight, this is a perfect representation of exactly how many people are doing that. And right now, nobody's saying no to anything. They're taking anything they can get. You know what's bad news, too? We got a slight blip in here due to Prime Day. There were a lot of Prime Day, Amazon Prime Day volume. You can see that little run up in there, but it immediately bleeded back out. And again, we're supposed to kind of be in a little bit of a height of peak season, have things moving us. And that stuff's not just coming there. We got, we got good news coming in on the water, those kind of things. At least we got volumes coming in. But 
with all this capacity and stuff, you're not you're not seeing any of that stuff. And if we move over to the index, you can also see what it's doing to rates because nobody's rejecting these spot rates. There's nowhere for them to go. They even fell two cents. They're now down to two dollars and twenty seven cents, Justin. Yeah, no, and like you said, this is supposed to be peak season, and it's just kind of flat right now. It is not looking good for anyone that was trying to hopefully, you know, make it through this season to, you know, get through next year and, and hopefully see the rebound in rates. If if you're struggling right now, you really need to start doing some soul searching and whether or not you can hang in. That 227 a mile, by the way, we'll contrast that in a little bit with what Atri had to say in their survey, but I'll give you a little uh, spoiler towards that. It was 225 to operate a truck, so they're operating at a margin of two cents. Two twenty-five yeah. operate truck. You're making two cents a mile. Yeah, and uh, we're seeing with fuel still going up. You know that's going to be uh, driving that rate up even higher. Your operating now, cost, rather. What is the dynamic between spot and contract rates? We'll take a look at our next chart over here. Wasson did a great job breaking this down last week. We're right now at a seventy-nine cent difference. So if you're in the spot market, you're making seventy-nine cents on average less than that contracted freight is. Why isn't this being pushed up? Well, there's no volume and there's no rejects and there's too many drivers for these two things to flip-flop. But the other effect that this has is it also drives down RFPs. Yeah. No, it, again, too many drivers. Every, I, the ATA is doing a, um, a big conference right now, and I wish we had like an airplane flying overhead with these on like banners flying overhead for people to see. Um, there's absolutely no driver shortage whatsoever right now. Contract rates have fallen three cents per mile in the third quarter. Here's what some uh, listeners had to say. Vince Turi, he said, it could get really ugly. We have a huge capacity bubble in the market due to COVID. Brokers are still retaining those clients from when shippers were struggling for capacity, further driving rates down for carriers. Uh, he's talking about contracts there. We're also seeing a significant reduction of load count due to the UAW strike. Good point there. And tough economic conditions and tight bank lending. And in serious global uncertainty with the conflicts, it will be a very bumpy ride. And that's the thing, too. Like, we also have a war over in the Middle East now with what's going on with Israel. We already have another war over in the Ukraine. Two big black swan events. Also, with everything we've got going on domestically here, it's a huge struggle. And I think that it's really weighing on the psychology. Like, if you remember in 2022, when we were talking about this freight market falling off, there were so many naysayers. There were so many people, uh, like, attacking us. And it's like those stages of grief and denial. And now it seems like the industry's in that stage of sort of, like, sad acceptance. Yeah, no, it's just the reality on the ground right now. Uh, Derek uh, Tilafiro, he says, many carriers have also added freight brokerage to their service offerings as an alternative revenue stream. I imagine those are who, affect it, who are effective at it or using their revenue stream to stay afloat. I would think so. If you have a brokerage arm in there, you can tender your own freight, which is what we try, always try to tell the smaller guys to do. Um, the ones like the guys yeah. who are running one truck, they got to live off load boards. It's like, Look, the load board provides a service to you. It means you don't have to run it back off as staff to go and find rates for you. But if you can create maybe somewhat of a little bit of a team here, you can get into some contracts, you can get into some dedicated lanes. Again, that's a 79 cent difference, Justin. Yeah, it never made sense to me why, you know, the larger carriers understand, you know, you got to consolidate or merge together to survive in this industry. But all the independent guys all still want to stay like their own independent little little bubbles. The way the market is right now, you need to decide whether or not you want to like join together with, you know, five, six other carriers amongst yourself and then start your own brokerage. As they say, if you can't beat them, join them. That may be a good idea. That may be a good idea. Well, here to sum it all up, unless there is, this is what Craig said, unless there is an acceleration of revocations, i.e. trucking companies shuttering their authorities, Freightways models suggest the trucking market has 78 weeks to go before capacity is back in balance 
with historical trends. So it could be a cold 2024 out there. Y'all out there, you got to prepare. I hate to bring this news to you, but that's what the model is showing. And with the bleed out, and I know we had two bankruptcies, not that we root for these bankruptcies, but they're a byproduct yeah. of what we're seeing here. We had a uh, was it metal? It was like 274 drivers. Again, not because yeah. of a driver shortage. If anything, this driver shortage narrative is hurting this market recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. And 78 weeks is key. You need to start looking at your P&Ls and seeing how long you can operate in this market right now and whether you can make it 78 weeks. Because again, 78 weeks is when things are going to go back to quote unquote normal. It's not going to be when rates are going to go back to those COVID highs again. So even even after the 78, 80 week period, you know, rates are only going to be, you know, stable. I, I wouldn't say, you know, increased. I, I hear you. Well, you know, it's a big trend every year. Atri puts out their top issues and they talk about what issues combined are harming the industry. What issues carriers and drivers think. Let's go through it a little bit. But first, let's look at the top industry issues. This is like all all participants who were surveyed combined. This is truckers, carriers, bro, everyone they asked was put in this survey right here. And the top 10 goes as follows. We got economy at number one. Uh, actually, it used to be at number five. Truck parking yeah. moves from number three to number two. Fuel prices move from number three to number one. If you remember last year, they were getting really bad. Uh, if you follow John Kingston stuff, you've seen there's there's some there, there's been a lot of movement in the market. It doesn't seem like we're in for like that catastrophic of run up just yet. Could change with uh, how alliances align during this Middle Eastern conflict. But right now it's at number three. Driver shortage has moved from number two to number four. <laughs> Maybe we are doing some good work here. Driver compensation moved to number four to number five. I would argue driver shortage and driver compensation are the exact same thing. They're just the drivers think of it as compensation. The carriers think of it as shortage because they want to pay less money. Number six, lawsuit abuse reform. That moved up from number 10. Carriers seeing what? Too many, uh, too many nuclear verdicts, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have some big ones this year for sure. Distract driver distracted. It was number seven in 2018 and is back at number seven here. Driver distraction. Too many drivers not paying attention on the road. Yeah, too many phones in their pocket in their in their hands. Number nine, detention, delay at customer facilities. That has fallen from number six. That makes sense in this market. Less freight volumes. Uh, if you look in our wait time index in sonar, you're gonna see that wait times have fallen off in the past year. So the fact that it's fallen off on this list, no surprise, people are having a slightly better time. But for for not great reasons, not like systemic reasons. Yeah. Like people are making great dock efficiency moves. It's just there's less volume. There's less, less freight. <laughs> and then number 10, zero emissions vehicles with carb regulations pushing in. Um, I imagine a lot of that has to do with the carriers because they got to pretty much get them first. The carriers very sort of concerned about this zero uh, emissions vehicle push. Yeah, and it's brand new on the list. Um, wasn't even on there last year. I, I tweeted this out earlier. You know, if they address number five, that will take care of issues nine and eight, and then you know four basically just might not even be on there. That's that's just gaslighting, as far as I'm concerned. It's just gaslighting, as far. Well, here's the zero emissions vehicles. Atri found that having electric chargers at all 313,000 truck parking spots would cost 35 billion dollars. <laughs> okay, shake some couch, uh, shake some cushions loose, I guess. Here it is. Rising interest rates, higher diesel and maintenance costs, increasing pay for truckers, and rising insurance premiums drove the operating cost of a truck to $225 per mile in 2022. Again, just to remind you, we said spot freight was at $227 right now. It's dire. Yeah, I don't think I've talked to a carrier yet this year that's uh, renewed their, their insurance plan and hasn't seen an increase in their premiums. Everybody's getting hammered right now on their premiums. 
Number two was uh, this one here. It said, according to Atri, truck drivers spend an average of 56 minutes a day looking for parking. We cover that all the time. Good that that's on the list you want to address. Um, at least there's some private companies. you got like Finn Park, Truck Parking Club. you got some of these, these groups out here taking it upon themselves to help. Drivers don't always love it because a lot of these you, you have to pay. But if you want somewhere yeah. safe to park, I mean, I don't know. A modest fee might be the way to do it. Maybe carriers should be paying for it, though. Yeah, and as long as the price is reasonable, I suppose you know it all depends on where you're at. Um, I know, like you know, Fontana, California, it's like one of the worst in the country to park. But if you know you can pay twenty, twenty-five, maybe even forty dollars to park for the night, you know, that that takes a burden off your mind. Driver shortage was number one for five consecutive years from 2017 to 2021. Thanks for that fact, Mr. Alan Adler. Zay, the truck driver, says he has number 11, being given the address to the car entrance instead of the truck entrance. He said that's the, his number one top issue. Yeah, you learn that very quickly. Every time you, anytime you call someplace to get the address, you tell them, no, 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 no. Don't tell me how you get to work. Tell me how the trucks get there, please. Alex Wood said, economy definitely playing a role, but I've heard recently of a lot of issues at customs, customer warehouses. Not sure if it's a trend everywhere, but for some reason, I've noticed an uptick in their communication and execution. Oh, good. Just anecdotal at this point, however. Yeah, I think it's that lower volumes, and we're seeing that improve a little bit. A nice positive. Chris yeah. Brewer said, I agree with these issues. However, not having rising insurance premiums on this list is a miss. I think maybe the uh, the the uh, reform you know, the verdict reform is kind of where people's heads were at, because I, I, I think that's very similar, isn't it? Although insurance yeah, premiums yeah, are tough right now. Yeah, yeah. Now, hopefully, if you fix one, you fix the other. Nate Schutz says technology didn't even make the top 10. That's what has him most concerned. Do you think uh, technology should be higher? Well, as far as, like, the companies or drivers, maybe the, maybe the companies, because, you know, more technology would supposedly... Uh, you know, bringing efficiencies, but most, most drivers, you know, once, once they're in their groove, it's like, what's more tech in my truck going to do for me? John Billis said, uh, our list shows our top issues for carriers is economy, driver retention, fuel, truck parking, detention delays. And I'm so glad he said driver retention instead of driver mm -hmm. shortage. We're in a business with a hundred percent turnover. We got what? 4 million active CDLs. We got 10 million in the industry. We got a really crappy market, but here is the difference in how drivers and motor carriers are thinking about this. Justin, we move over to the commercial drivers. They got Driver compensation at number one, followed by truck parking, fuel prices, speed limiters, detention delays, driver training standards, economy, broker issues, ELD mandate, and at number 10, autonomous trucks. Guys, don't be worried about those just yet. Uh, motor carriers say economy, driver shortage, lawsuit abuse reform, driver retention, fuel prices, insurance costs, so that at least was there, zero emissions vehicles, which is much higher. Oh, there, see, I knew that would be the most concerned. Most drivers, owner-operators, they're not like ah, i gotta get a zero, a zero ev but the fleets are actually thinking about this stuff diesel technician shortage that's a big one kids you're looking to go to school you're looking at these rising uh, college costs become a diesel technician i know people think they're trying to outlaw it it's gonna be a long time before that happens in this industry and there's even less people going in because they hear all that marketing all that rhetoric rhetoric about electronic vehicles but right now we need a lot of diesel technicians and you can make some good coin in there and the last one for carriers was driver distraction and again that puts them in, in the firing line for both insurance and and those verdicts yeah those big nuclear verdicts it's it's kind of weird how they have driver shortage and driver retention both still kind of like pretty high up there on the list like guys if you take care of retention there goes your shortage yeah 
Yeah, well, you know who you know who Amanda Schuer said. My point is, working at a trucking company is that I need to start on the left and ignore the stuff on the right. The stuff on the left was the driver issues. Stuff on the right is the carrier issues. But a lot of your carrier issues are driven by the issues the drivers have. And a lot of the issues the drivers have are driven by what the carriers are doing. So y'all need to get together and make some synchronicity in those two lists because we're obviously not looking at the same. And every year, it, it never aligns. Yeah, well... At F3, we're going to have more truck drivers there this year, so hopefully we get a little bit of that happening where drivers are talking to some of the C-suite-level people at these companies. So anecdotally, some people have said, and you know, our data is showing wait times are shorter, but Zay, the truck driver, said on this list, whoever he is pulling for is screwing him. He said, truck parking, detention. Detention becomes number one when the shippers and receivers keep you past the clock and they have no parking on the property. He said they're tied together, you can't segment them, and he, he needs to be going to better shippers, Zay. Yeah, I, there's nothing worse than when you have an appointment for you know a, a drop off and you get there and you, they only let you arrive or depart you know 15 minutes early. You can't park overnight. It's just like, do you want your stuff or not? You know, semi average too. A lot of drivers still because it directly impacts them. They have to sit there and think. They're probably responding to my polls and my tweets while they're sitting in detention. There might be a good chance. So that tends to get magnified. Semi average said detention. That's number two for him. I'm currently in produce. It oh produce is yeah, produce yeah, can be produce rough. Is the worst. He said it's normal to wait four to fourteen hours for a couple pallets. Look, look at that range too. You have no idea. You just have this sense of dread that you're coming in there and you're either gonna have to waste four hours of your life or it could be up to fourteen. You have no idea. Yeah, my record was 18 hours, and that was for glass. Uh, when I did produce, most of the time, like you could be out, like if you're in a, a field during peak season, you could be out there waiting for people to still be picking the the product and putting it on the on the pallets or gaylords, and then putting it on your truck. So yeah, it, yeah, four to 14 hours is is pretty typical. Yeah, you don't want to show up during the middle of the harvest. Like, yeah, sorry, they're still out there in the field, super trucker. You got you to gotta wait. Here's another one, and this is something you yell about, too. It ties into schools, and he goes, driver training. It's getting super dangerous because they're pushing people out of training with uh, that without having an automatic would fail getting their CDL. Now, I don't know about the automatic. A lot of trucks are automatic. I don't know if that's a big thing, but I think good training in general is a big issue. We see a lot of times people put in training positions who haven't been driving a truck. Now, I understand the automatic and the, and the manual stands out there are going to argue all they want. But my argument is, yeah, maybe automatics don't, you know, in, in terms of the shifting, but most trucks are automatic. I think you can still teach a person to drive a truck that's an automatic, but the standards have to be there. And rushing people through programs isn't doing it. And I think that, in, to his point, the automatics allow them to push trainers through these programs quicker. Yeah, there are some carriers that have, you know, the majority of their drivers that have less than three months experience behind the wheel, like the majority. And I, I argue, too, I, I would not be surprised whatsoever if that was also the case for the, some of their trainers, too. You know, I, I've seen companies with as low as 90 days behind the wheel of, of a semi and then you can become a trainer. That that's I mean, you talk about companies scared of nuclear verdicts. What are they thinking with that? No, I I hear you. And, I, you know, I got to agree with the the motor carriers that like their right to be thinking economy is number one. They're the most impacted. They can't think about increasing driver pay or bringing on any of that kind of stuff until they figure out what they are. We're getting a lot of people going out of business. I know it needs to happen, but yeah, I mean, economy, unfortunately, especially from what we just talked about before, seems like for the next 78 weeks at least, or was that months, 78 months, not even weeks, 78 months. Did he say yeah, months, yeah. weeks? Um, no, it's weeks. It's gotta be weeks. I'm reading the TikTok comments here. It's it says Uncle Max, uh, Uncle Max wants to get hired as a driver retention specialist. <laughs> oh, that. well, that would. Why don't places have that? Why don't they have someone who can talk to drivers and, like, you hear drivers who are out of warning sign? They're thinking of quitting. They're thinking of getting out of there. And someone who can, like, get them psychologically right. 
That's actually a really good idea. I'm going to um, brainstorm that because, yeah, that was really tough for me. Like the first three months when you're on the road by yourself, that is the hardest driving you'll ever do. Not, not just as far as like the difficulty of driving and you're in new places you don't know about. But, yeah, just the that mentality of like, is this really worth it? Like, do I want to be here? I, I can find something else better to do. You got to stick through it. Once once you make it past those 90 days you're and you and you can do it, you're in the clear. Yeah, yeah, man, I, you're. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna start reaching out to guys like Max and see what we can do here. No, so here's the thing: some companies have ambassadors, right? But ambassadors are more for marketing. You need an a driver ambassador yeah. who's not just there for the. Maybe you can put this stuff on social, but it's not just there for the marketing. It's to do the actual purpose. And I understand people are like ah, oh, you know, men they don't they don't have any psychological problems. We got tons of psychological problems. We're in our head. And you're talking about drivers who are stuck in the islands. You need to help them out. And one of the reasons they have psychological problems is they have to go to delivery locations like this one. Let's take a look right here. This would give me anxiety and uh, roll that. Uh, this would give me anxiety. And uh. So what's what's the uh. What's the worst dock that you've ever been to? Elizabeth, New Jersey. Basically, it looked like this, but it was like an alley instead of a bunch of other trucks. I mean, there were some tight, tight spots. In Chicago. Oh, my God. My first three months on the road, speaking about wanting to quit. Every time uh, I was sent to, from Gary, Indiana to Chicago, Illinois, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to crush some cars. But thankfully, made it made it through. Yeah, that, <laughs> my God, that is such a disaster there. And there's so many people just like wandering around pushing like pallets and loads of crap. You could run them over. You can't really, you got to be like, you have to have your head down a swivel in there. Seems rough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all shipping containers, too. There's not a van or nothing in there. It's, it's just who the heck knows what they got going on in there. We need it's wild. We need an adult amusement park to practice at. Take a look at this this location right here. You close this one down. We got to go to the adult. Yeah, this, these guys right here. How if this was like at the mall? You're there with Sully and your wife goes shopping. Like, wouldn't you let her stay there all day? Oh, absolutely. We we so I took my my son to the mall over the weekend. Actually, we went to this like cool arcade. You know, you play a you pay a flat rate and you play whatever games you want. Um, they need something like this there. That would have been a lot of fun. They had a lot of pinball games and classic arcades, but nothing like this. This is this is cool. Look, you can fill up each other's trucks and everything. This would keep me entertained for at least a few hours. It would buy it would buy the wife some time, that's for sure. But you are in New Jersey. Are you aware of this amusement park for adults, Diggerland USA? Let's play their ad. It's Where do you want to go? Great song too. Oh yeah. Have you been yet? Not yet. We definitely know about it. We used to pass by it all the time on the way back to Philadelphia. Um, it's definitely on the list. It's in Berlin Township, New Jersey, for those of you who are interested. Now, can men do this too? I'm sorry, what? Can, can men do this too, or is this just for kids? Uh, I believe the driving around and stuff is just for kids. That's actually a really good question. I don't know if adults are allowed in uh, the construction equipment. I would enjoy this. Oh, yeah. Local places have the best themes, too. Now, speaking yeah, yeah. of... Speaking of music, we'll we'll get to the sleeper next time. Let's go over to what was happening at AMC because you had a very volatile reaction to this when I posted it online. The girls were having a, a great time. It's the number one movie in America. It beat the Paw Patrol. It beat the Extras. It brought in $96 million in the box office. It's Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour, and people are treating it like a real concert. I just – I get – 
so the very first job I ever had was as an usher at a movie theater, Regal Cinemas. I did that for two years, and I'm just getting like PTSD Vietnam flashbacks just looking at this. Like, he's, good God, he turned red, movies. and he's wiping his head as he as he says this. You, I can see him in the green room. He looks like he's having serious struggles. You know what? My sister, though, she so if you like it, so you should go to the one in Methuen, Mass. My um, not my sister, my uh, my niece, my sister's daughter. She went to go see the Eras Tour in Methuen, Mass. She said the Swifties there were a bunch of thuds. She tried to sing during it, and they told her to be quiet and sit down. <laughs> yeah, I want to know like what what. Um regions a lot of these audiences are taking place because were you in methuen over the weekend i was in south florida during that so different different audience down there they're they're probably uh dancing around too all right go find him at super trucker find me at timothy duna that's d-o-o-n-e-r find us at fw what the truck look up what the truck wherever you get your podcast take care and don't be a stranger